All right. Um, William James. William James, it says, born 1842, lived to 1910. He, he is honestly our only philosopher. Um, <laughs> if you read European books in French or German about American philosophy, they begin with William James and they end with William James. Right? <laughs> what entry? Uh, that's only barely a, a, an exaggeration. He was our great contribution to philosophy. Ah, the good side of it is his contribution was so astoundingly strong that he, he really cemented a place uh, for American thinkers and philosophy. And if you read either the Italian or French philosophers in particular, one of the questions they ask is, where are the rest of your William Jameses? Right, that's what they want to know. Much like many of the continental readers think, where are the rest of your Henry Jameses? They were uh, brothers, of course. Anyway, born into the James family, in which everybody had the same name for generations, by the way. If you try to read a biography of any of these characters, because they only had theirs, William and Henry, and then they named everybody that. And so you'll have like whole scenes with like five or six William and Henry Jameses talking to each other or corresponding, and you just never know what the hell's going on. Uh, but, but they were a close family, lots of kids, extended family. His father was... was I wouldn't even call him eccentric. Yeah, he's eccentric. Um, but he did not believe in public education. He thought the public schools just ruined your mind. Um, but it's not clear he knew what he believed in. So he would hire tutors and then fire them. And then he would take over their education themselves and realize that wasn't working. So then they'd go to Europe for a while and he'd put them in European schools. And he decided those European schools were bad and moved to another city in Europe and they put him in schools there. So this way James went to uh, Germany, England and Germany, several cities in Germany while he was quite young, and then to Paris, and then back to America, where they put him in schools and took him out. So they did this his whole life, into schools, out of schools, private tutors, fire them, fire them, get somebody else in, take it over himself, get rid of, decide that's not working. And so he had a, a broad and strange education. Uh, great with languages, because he was in, for some time educated in Germany, in German, in France, in French, um, and this gave him a, a big help so that he corresponded and wrote and visited a lot in later life with French and German philosophers and, and researchers. And this aided him greatly in his research, as we'll see. Um, the other notable aspect of the family is that they were very, very, what would you call it? They're literarily inclined. Uh, Henry James, his brother, probably certainly one of our foremost novelists, the greatest novelist of that period and one, still one of the foremost novelists in English, um, you know, they were raised together in this family, and this is, they, they talked about literature, they talked about science, they talked about philosophy, they talked about religion, more or less what the family did. And all of the correspondence that we have of people who visited the family at the time would leave and say, you simply cannot believe the level, level of dinner table conversation at the James's house. This is like getting a doctoral dissertation dropping by for dinner. But they're also quite aggressive. This was the other thing, is they would get in there and like threaten each other at the dinner table with knives, right? I can't believe you would say that about Helmholtz's research. You know, they, just, you know, they, they went at it, hammer and tongs, as they say. Very, very lively, aggressive. It wasn't a dour, repressed family like that. No, they were uh, alive, and their letters are quite crazy. Um, where, you know, William James would write to Henry James something like, just read your latest novel, uh, blew my head off, ran around the streets naked, screaming to the neighbors that my brother is the greatest writer who ever lived, and I'll kill you if you say otherwise. Your brother in love, 
William James, right? I mean, that would be all dash, 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 right? Um, and so they, they had this sort of crazy, lively streak. So it wasn't all seriousness and, and dourness. Um, but for, for William, this led to a bit of a crisis. He was always quite, quite gifted, very, very successful education-wise, knew he was smart, knew he had skills, didn't have any idea what to do with them. And this became increasingly a problem because Henry was about 18 months younger than he was and launched a literary career very young. And so James, the older brother, the leader, um, uh, very intellectually gifted, continually starts hearing, well, okay, I'm 22, my younger brother's 19 and a half, he's starting to publish reviews. Well, that's very nice. Well, I'm 24, he's starting to publish novels and get a reputation, and I'm doing... Well, good for Henry. I'm 26. Henry is now more or less an independent person living off the earnings and royalties, becoming quite the reputation in Europe, and I am, you know, I'm 28. Yeah. And he had this problem. He did not know what to do. He was good at just about whatever he turned his hand to, and he was always active, but he couldn't figure out what he should actually do. His first great decision was to be a painter. And they had a family friend who was, who was a, a, an excellent painter. And so he said, well, I'm going to move in with this guy and learn to paint. And his father was dead set against this. Um, and not for the reason that I think any other father has ever been dead set against their son becoming a professional artist. He didn't say, well, you know, you're not going to be able to make a living because he didn't care about that. He didn't say, well, you won't be a, a great painter because he thought maybe his son would be a great painter. What he said was, you will not find the diverse intellectual fulfillment that you need if you become a painter. That is not who you are. You're not a painter. That's not, you will be intellectually starved. So you need to do something that will be more intellectually fulfilling for you. And this turns out to be true. <laughs> uh, and it took, even though he was a beautiful sketch artist, and everyone commented on this immediately, he realized, um, as he wrote to Henry James, I believe, he said, uh, there's nothing more depressing in the world than a second-rate artist. Uh, and, so, and so he was not going to do that. He said, I'm not going to be a second-rate artist. So then he goes to Harvard. Um, and what do you study at Harvard? Well, you study everything. He just started wandering around. And this is when Harvard was... Um, not particularly well organized. If you could pay the tuition, you were in. You did not necessarily need to attend classes. There was no formal structure for a lot of the materials that was being presented. The professors that were there had been chosen in a very haphazard, almost random fashion, many of whom wanted nothing to do with students. Um, and so, uh, as, as a writer, a contemporary said, uh, Harvard likes to take credit for all of the brilliant people like William James who have graduated from there, but I'm not sure you get to take credit for them surviving your institution. <laughs> and that's what he always thought of it as, is yes, well, they survived it, yeah. So James immediately or eventually decides that he's going to go into medicine. Um, and he decides on this because, one, he's been interested in physiological research for quite some time. He's done dissection. Um, he's been in laboratories. Um, but mostly because it's a job. He goes into it for the cash, almost purely. He's like, well, I don't know what else to do. And... If I'm a doctor, at least that's something I can do to make money while I figure out what I want to do. <laughs> Great. So he goes in to be a doctor. So he's in studying to be a doctor, which I don't even want to tell you what the medical 
filled with life in. It just, not terribly rigorous, let me put it that way. Uh, when, to graduate, you had to take a series of nine tests in each subject. Each test was about 30 minutes long, and you had to pass four of them. <laughs> so you could fail things like, you know, the, the nervous system and you know, surgery and, and uh, gynecology and birth and still be okay and still get your doctors, right? Oh, terrifying, terrifying stuff. Um, so he's in his first year of, of medical school and he gets an offer from another professor and he says, look, um, you've always been interested in natural philosophy. I'm going to go up to Brazil and collect specimens. Why don't you come with me? And James just leaps at the opportunity. Absolutely. Bored out of his mind with the medical stuff. Let's go to Brazil. I'll be a naturalist, he thinks. Excellent. So he signs on, and they, this is when Brazil is terra incognita. I mean, no one knows what's going on there. This is one of the earliest uh, trips to gather specimens of, of the fish and birds and wildlife there. In particular, this was fish, though, because the guy he was going with was an anti-Darwinite, Darwinianite, I guess. Um, and he wanted to prove that Darwin's theory of, uh, select, of, of, or of evolution under, under natural selection was wrong by showing that fish in different parts of the Amazon were distinctly and radically different from fish in the other part. And so there was no possible way that they had evolved from a common ancestor. So this was his plan. Now James was an ardent, had already written articles defending Darwin, ardent Darwinian, uh, supported him very early and, and, and very with, with great fervor throughout his life. Um, and, but he wanted to go because A, he said, even if this guy's wrong on Darwin, he's a brilliant naturalist, and he really was, and B, um, it, what, a, what an opportunity. So he goes to Brazil, um, and upon arriving, he writes back home, I don't think I'm a naturalist. <laughs> it turns out I very well may not be that, right? Uh, and, and he's attacked by all kinds of tropical diseases and bugs and snakes and infestation, but mostly he finds it horribly boring, relaxing. But he says, you know, what do you do? You go out in a canoe, you row up the Amazon, you collect fish, you salt the fish, you put them in a barrel. You row out in the Amazon, you collect fish, you salt the fish, you put them in a barrel. You do this hour after hour, day after day. And he realized, beautiful area, loved Brazil, enjoyed the trip immensely, learned a lot, learned he did not want to be a naturalist. So he comes back home and he's reaffirmed in his notion that, okay, I'm going to be a medical doctor. So he goes through the, and very easily passes all the... Um, degree in uh, all of the interviews that you have to pass to become a doctor, including several which were with family friends, who said, well, William, how's Henry? Any news from Europe? This was his medical exam. And so they chatted about family gossip and whatnot, and he'd go to the next one, and they'd say, well, Henry, you know, how's your mom? I haven't seen her about for a while. And then at the end of the day, oh, you're a doctor. Bang. Congratulations. Now you can help people, apparently. Um, but what he ended up doing is being hired on part-time as an instructor at Harvard. Um, by the new president of Harvard, Norton, who is, the, who is the gentleman who made Harvard what it is today. Totally reformed the medical school, everything. You just What you think of as Harvard today is a product of this single president, more or less. More than anybody else, certainly. Um, and he just said, you know, William, you've got your degree, you're a genius, why don't you work for us? He goes, I don't have anything else to do, fine, and I don't want to be a doctor. Um, but what he starts doing immediately is medical experiments in the physiology labs. This is what his first love is. At the same time, he starts recognizing its importance for psychology. 
and he starts bringing together the physical elements of the body and the mental element of the body. And he says, you know, I think there's something here, and I want to write a book on this. So he gets an advance. Um, Charles Elliott Company gives him an advance, and one year he figures, okay, I'll, 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 I'll knock this out in a year. And 12 years later, um, <laughs> he published what is certainly one of the great works in the English language, which is The Principles of Psychology. A quick read, short 1,100 pages, uh, much of it in tiny footnotes, and lots of medical terminology. Uh, however, that being said, it really is uh, an amazing work, and it combines uh, philosophy, psychology, and physiology in a way I've never, I've never seen a work, even the near equivalent of this for combining these three elements so seamlessly to produce a comprehensive understanding of sort of how our minds work and what that means for philosophy. But it's important to note, and I gave his background about medical school and the physiology, because everything he writes, he writes from the standpoint of an empiricist, which is to say, I need evidence. Whatever it is I'm doing, I want the evidence that demonstrates that this is accurate. Always goes back to the evidence. If you don't have evidence for it, you won't believe it. By this way, the first thing this does is it makes him an enemy of all idealism. He did not like idealists at all in any way, shape, or form. A few of the examples that he uses, he said, um, you know, th there's this concept in Christianity of original sin. He says, you cannot experience original sin. You can't test for original sin. There's no, it's an ideal. It may even be true. He said, I can't say it's not true. I just don't believe it because this is this ideal, inhuman thing that we cannot reach back and actually feel, touch, or experience ourselves. Therefore, I don't believe it. He said, in Buddhism, there's the notion of first noble truth is the world is a world of sorrow, a world of suffering. He says, anybody who's lived in the world, uh, no matter how miserable your life, has had moments of joy. He says, the human experience suggests that there is a mix of joy and sorrow. So this notion that the world is a world of suffering, I just don't believe it. He's like, I just our experience contradicts that. And so you have to go back to your experience. What people will tell you, what you feel yourself. If you don't feel it, it's probably, he doesn't think it's probably true. He says, at the time, there was still a strong school of philosophy um, that said that we live in the best of all possible worlds because we live in the world that God created, therefore it is the best of all possible worlds, right? Because unless we assume that God did a really bad job in our world and has better ones someplace else, which is generally rejected out of hand by idealists, then this must be the best one. And he said, as long as there is a single cockroach bewailing its fortune of unrequited love, we do not live in the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> right? We just need to find that cockroach and then we would have the, the evidence that disproves that notion. By the way, this, this approach, this radical empiricism, as it's come to be called, he did not call it that himself necessarily. Um, he did in some places, but not everywhere. Um, would, would work strongly against uh, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, and Russell it would sort of go right to the heart of their project and overthrow it. Because much of what they were pursuing was particular ideals. And they were trying to provide the evidence for the ideal. And James says that is always wrong. You go from the evidence to something else, not from the idea to what evidence supports it. You always start with experience, with facts, things you can test and verify for yourself, if at all possible. 
So, it's, this is the strange thing about the principles of psychology, is you'll get a chapter on human notion of time. How do we sense time? But it will be filled with all kinds of scientific experiments run on. If you, you, know, if you click a clock at this many paces, beats per second, can you discern the difference of those beats? You know, if, if you do this, can someone remember that? How long can they remember that for? Here's you know, a 14-page footnote that goes in all this research that's been done by you know, Helmholtz or whoever in Germany to support his notion of time. Um, one of the things he demonstrates, by the way, is that now lasts somewhere between 12 seconds and not longer than a minute. We have no sense of now longer than a minute. There's no, he said that you can find no experimental evidence that now is longer than a minute. Occasionally shorter than 12 seconds. But he says a good mean average is probably 12 seconds. That's what we mean. When we say now, it turns out our experience is probably that long. Which is crazy. You know, if you read that section, it really is its convincing, but I just don't know what that means. It's 12 seconds. Now is 12 seconds. We'll, we'll get into that. Later. So if you've ever heard the term stream of consciousness, people have heard this term? This is, this is William James. This is his, his development and exploration brings this forward. And it's based on the notion uh, by Heraclitus, the, the Greek philosopher, who said you can never immerse yourself in the same river twice. Also translated, you can never step in the same river twice. Probably more accurate to say immerse yourself in the same river twice. Because it's always moving, it's always changing. He says, this is human consciousness. And if you open it up, I want to go through these five, because it's really important. These are the five elements that he... That he tracks out. You want to know what consciousness is? It's these five things. Or it's made up of this. One, he says, every thought tends to be part of personal consciousness. He says, there aren't thoughts in the world that we find. They don't exist there. They're always inside a person. And you can't get them out. They're yours. You can't like hand them off to somebody else. If you want to communicate with somebody, you have to try to excite in them what appears to you to be the same thought that you've had. That's as close as you can get. You have to hope, suspect, believe that what they're experiencing is something like what you're experiencing. But you have no way of knowing. So he says, thought is radically isolated. It's always in an individual person. And there's no way to get it out of an individual person and therefore massively plural. Every person has different thoughts, unique thoughts. Their thoughts alone. And so the world is filled with six billion different thinkers thinking their own world of thoughts. Inaccessible and plural. It's one, one element of consciousness. Two, within each personal consciousness, thought is always changing. And it's great, you could run experiments on yourself. Try and hold to a single thought. <coughs> He says, you just can't do it. He says, even if you try to do it, what you feel, in fact, while you try to do that, is you feel time passing as you think about the thought, which, of course, transforms the thought to the point where you think thinking about this stupid thought is really boring. <laughs> right? And that's a new kind of understanding of the thought. So he says, you never have the same thought twice since the Heraclitus reference. It's a continuous stream it's always evolving and changing. With each personal consciousness, thought is sensibly continuous. 
Not that it is continuous, by the way. He, he doesn't argue. In fact, he gives a lot of evidence that actually our consciousness probably breaks up into all kinds of weird fragments. But he says, we're not worried about that. That's a different issue. We feel it as if it's continuous. So when you wake up in the morning, James' example, right? you don't think, I'm a totally and completely new person in a new world, nothing has ever happened to me. It feels more like, oh, I'm just picking up where I was. It's just something that's it's been, I, I slept, but now I'm, I'm right back in where I was. It's continuing again. It says we don't really experience breaks in consciousness. We, don't, we may, but we don't sense them that way. And so when you think about consciousness, it's important to think of this as continuous, evolving, and private event. That's hard to get out. It always appeals to deal with. It always appears to deal with objects independent of itself. The objects aren't independent of us. We'll get into that. But that's what we feel like. If I think about something, Paris, it feels to me like I'm thinking about something that is not me. This is wrong because the thought is in me. And so it's this weird psychological quirk that no matter what we think about. We develop this notion that it's an object, even if it's an object like, uh, you know, an abstract concept like love or um, the square root of negative one. Right? I feel like, oh, square root of negative one is out in the world and I'm thinking about it. James says, no. We feel that way. Absolutely. And you have to remember that you feel that way. But again, there's, it's, it's clear that that's not the case. But that's how we feel. Five, most important of all this, is interested in some part of these objects to the exclusion of others, and welcomes or rejects, chooses from among them, in a world all the while. So, what this means is, we feel like we're continuously thinking about things that are not us, they are in the world, and that we've captured them more or less completely. But what we actually do is we reject, we choose, we select the aspects of certain things that we're going to pay attention to. This is true both psychologically and physiologically. He shows it on both levels. Not his example, but a good example. My favorite example of this is if you look at the eye, try to draw the eye again, uh, light comes in and hits your, hits your retina, which is back here. How do you like my eye? Very convincing eye. It's hugely realistic, isn't it? Uh, so whatever light comes off, it comes in like this. So out here we have, I don't know, a tree. We'll call this a tree. There is no unique solution for this. Your eye never receives the pattern of a tree because the pattern of the light that hits your eye there is not one thing. You get like 50 images of the tree all blurred all over your eye. Your brain takes those 50 images and constructs something and goes, tree. But it's not a unique solution. All those things that they have that are tricks of the eye, Escher's works, what he's doing is he gives the eye something that the brain can't solve for. The brain can solve for trees to a certain extent. One thing the eye and the brain never get right because of this problem, there are railroad tracks joining in the distance. We know they don't join, but we always see them as joining because of this problem. The eye can't solve for it any other way. 
the eye gets the, the input, and then the brain has to sort it. The brain can't sort it except to come up with this idea, even though we know absolutely that they don't meet. We look at it, they meet. But we're doing this constantly with thousands and thousands of different inputs. And James keeps going back to the experimental evidence, the proof of this, because he says how we perceive things is not the way we think we have been perceiving things. Our consciousness is this continuous stream. I mean, pretty much when he says stream of consciousness, many, many people in the world, including lots of writers and artists, went, oh yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Right? You just have this wave. It's not this like, I have a thought. This rational process controls it. I examine it. I set it down. I pick up this thought. (laughs) Right? It's more like... Wow, I'm hungry. Look at that bird. I should do my homework. Oh, I wonder what's on TV. I'm still hungry. Wait a second, I'm late. Right? And then just it's just it's just this continuous stream. Is that I mean, isn't this much more? And sometimes we're buried in the stream. As he says that sometimes you you just feel you're so overwhelmed that you don't know what to do. Um, and your consciousness changes what you pay attention to in this stream. So this the, the classic one is if you I don't know, if you, if you buy a new car, you will see lots of those cars. If you become interested in a subject, you will see all kinds of references to the subject. And people say, well, isn't that uncanny? <laughs> all of the sudden, I read this book and I see all these references to the book. It's not uncanny. What it is, is your, your change, your mind has changed what it's paying attention to. And now you notice all the things that have been there the entire time, but your mind completely screened out. And our brains are great at this. Um, Some of the examples that he uses that we're probably all familiar with is if you've ever woken up, and then all of a sudden you realize that maybe your radio's on. But you don't hear it for a long time. (coughs) Or if your refrigerator's running and making a lot of noise, you don't hear it. And then when it stops making noise, you kind of go... (laughs) <laughs> because what your body has done is it's been screening out you, you, it's not that you haven't been paying attention it's that you have literally not been hearing it your brain has not been registering its presence but then when the refrigerator shuts off your, your, your ears actually send to get this little different signal that says ooh something has changed significantly and so then all of a sudden you're listening. You don't, you're not doing this consciously, but all of a sudden you're listening and you're not hearing anything because that's what's changed. And so you kind of have that sort of sense of falling in, right? You're kind of like, what? And you go, oh, now I know what's happening. The refrigerator shut off. Or you may not realize it and just sort of wander around. I don't know. But he says, you know, so we're screening information out all the time. If, if you've ever heard your heart beat, Right? Or if you, if, you, if you lay down and go to sleep, sometimes you hear your heart beat and the blood rushing through your... It's not like it just started. <laughs> right? It's not like you just laid down in bed and your heart started going and moving the blood around. No, it makes that noise all the time. It's really loud, isn't it? It's hard to imagine that our bodies are making that much noise all the time. But they, they honest, there are. Your heart is beating, I hope. Your heart should be beating and that blood is rushing around and you just don't hear it. <laughs> And, and so, you know, he com- continuously comes back to this. So he says, our perception of the world is shaped and filtered by all kinds of processes about which, to the point of James's research at his time, very little was known or expected. 
And if we're going to understand how we think, which is to say, understand how we interact with the world, we need to understand this. We need to experiment with this to try and figure this out. One last example here. One of my favorite ones. I love this one. So, magic teacup. Um, uh, what I want you to do is look at the teacup, cover one eye. Everybody see it? And move your head back and forth. Does the teacup seem to move? No, I mean, we know it's not moving, right? Why doesn't the teacup move? Notice we're moving our heads. Why doesn't our body interpret the teacup as moving and us being stationary? Ah, now do this. Cover one eye. And, and gently, please. I don't want to be sued. At the back of your eye, just push on a little bit. Whoa, I see the teapot is underway. Teacup's underway, isn't it? Right. So, here's what you've done. You've altered the visual angle of your eye to the cup. Now, the brain has to interpret this as either the cup is moving or I'm moving. Those are its choices. If you move your head like this, it turns out, this is the solution, it turns out, you have little muscles around your eye that hold your eye in place. And the brain takes readings from that all the time. So if those muscles move and your eyes stay stationary, it goes, oh, it's my head that's moving the object is stationary. But if you move the eye without moving the muscles, which happens when you push on it, the brain says, holy crap, that teacup's on the march. <laughs> right? So, and, and, right, that's just one of literally thousands and thousands of processes that are going on in our body all the time about which we, we really pay little attention, but shape our experience of the world. And so we're in this stream of physiological sensation, memory, emotion, intellect, reason, and it's just washing over us. And from that stream, certain things bubble up. Sometimes we know why. Sometimes we have no idea why. Everybody's felt this, right? You're walking down the street and you go, I'm pissed off. I don't know why I'm pissed off. Or you get up in the morning and you go, God, I'm sad. Why? Of all of this, why am I sad? Right? It's part of this. It's, it's just so many mechanisms at work. And so he says, this has a lot, surprisingly, large amount of implication for philosophy. He says, one, the notion that we have any direct experience of the world is clearly wrong. Clearly, totally, 100% wrong-headed. Because we, we really don't have a good, we have our experience of the world. But that, it, that the notion that our experience of the world corresponds to any kind of reality with a capital R is just more or less silly. It just can't possibly be when even the most basic thing like sound comes and goes. When train tracks join in the distance, and we know that's not true, but that's how we perceive it, how many of our other perceptions are more or less misleading us in the sense of absolute truth, capital T, idealist truth? He probably, he said, he said, he argues so much that you may as well just forget about that. And if you read the principles of psychology, it's a miracle we can cross a room. I mean, really, because you just, the body, you're like, how do we do that? I mean, what is, I mean, really, it is astounding what's actually happening, as, a, as opposed to what we imagine, we think must be happening. It turns out, 
No, it's all wrong. It's very, it's bad. I wish we could just talk about it all night. So he says, anyway, so two things grow out of this. One, a habit and attention. A lot of things do, but in the in principles of psychology. He says, because of this, because of the stream of consciousness, because there's so much that we could pay attention to, what we're doing in childhood and in fact all of our lives is acquiring habits that allow us not to pay attention to things. This is what habits do. They train us to screen things out. And they've done a lot of tests with this with people who drive cars, right? When you first learn to drive a car, it's a little nerve-wracking because you're trying to pay attention to everything, right? That's because you do not have the habit of car driving. When kids try to learn to walk, right, they're like, oh, i got to put my heel down and then my foot, and they forget the sand and they got clunk on the ground, right? <laughs> if you try to think about every aspect of walking, what you do is you fall down. You can run this experiment with beer, by the way. Um, but, 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 that's more or less true. Uh, but with, with, with kids, this is what they have to do. That's why they're so hilarious. Because you're like, how dumb are you? You just do it. But that's not helpful because until you acquire the habit of doing something automatically, you have to think about it. What habit does is freeze our mind from thinking about any kind of process that really we don't want to pay attention to. So how many people have driven somewhere, got there, and then just realized they arrived? Which is to say, you basically paid no attention at all. And you're like, holy crap, here I am. Right? Because from a terrifying experience, holy, oh, cars everywhere, I got to break, oh, no, gas, wait, ah, what's going on, to, you know, you're just there. You don't know what's going on, right? You just arrive all of a sudden, like you're transported. Um, but we can do that because we don't pay attention. Um, James says, how many people remember what order they brush their teeth in? Right? You know, what leg of your pants do you put on first? You know, most people will do this. Physiologically, we remember it. It's written into our bodies. But we don't have to think about it, so we don't pay any attention to it. But if you give us a pair of pants, it's not like we stand there and go, ooh, left, right, left, right, left, right. <laughs> He said, this, this is the function of habit. And he said, if we knew how large a part habit played in our effective functioning in the world, we would be much more careful with developing good habits. And he really believed in this. He suffered, uh, particularly when he was younger, from debilitating psychological and physical problems. He was a bit of a hypochondriac, very depressive, injured his back seriously. Um, and he struggled with that. And one of the ways he overcame this was in part through force of will and in part through trying to develop good habits to deal with it. And in retrospect, he realized, oh, much of my physical and mental anxiety was a growth of outgrowth of sort of very poor personal habits. Um, but he says, you, you don't want to think about them. That's the whole key. If you can do something without thinking about it and it's good for you, it works for you, then great. If you have a habit that doesn't work for you, that's debilitating or injures you in some way, oh, it's hell to change. You don't want to acquire those. Basically, he says, if you have it, well, now you've got to break it. And boy, we all know that's not a lot of fun. Um, because it's, he says, it's literally written into your physical body, just like being able to put your pants on without thinking about it, without brushing your teeth without thinking about it. We can do these things, we don't think about it. That's the purpose. Why? Because there's so much coming at us. The stream is so overwhelming that we have to do that. If we don't do that, 
we, we're just, we, we become confused and disoriented, which is what people report, right? Sometimes you just feel confused and disoriented. You don't know what to pay attention to. If you go to a foreign country or a new place, you just, all this new stuff, and you're just like, wow, I have to pay attention to everything. You can't do that. That's the debilitating side of the stream. If you try and take too much of it in at once, it, you get overwhelmed. The flip side of habit is attention. <coughs> he said, we also have the capacity, very limited by the way, but we have the capacity to pay attention to certain parts of the stream. Right? If, 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 if I, you know, I can do anything, I can wave my hand. Right? I can say, pay attention to my hand. Right? Normally you probably wouldn't pay that much attention to them. When I said, focus on the teacup, you know what we can do? We all looked at the teacup. See, now this is hugely important. A lot of animals do not have this capacity. They, do, they cannot selectively focus their attention. They, 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 their attention is focused automatically. Um, and, and so what this allows us to do is alter, again, our thoughts and also alter our natural habits. The, the, the example I love is, anybody ever play tennis? So when you play tennis, if, if, particularly if you play doubles, but you always want to hold your racket a little bit to your back hand because you can pull the racket forward faster than you can move the racket back. And so you always hold it a little bit off um, because theoretically you could get the ball 50% of the time on either side. This gives you the highest chance of an effective return. Now, this is very unnatural, right? And so, um, when I was learning to play tennis with my brother, we would play doubles, and I would be at the net, and I would hold it like this. And he would walk up behind me with a tennis racket and hit me in the back. Bam! And I would go, ah! <laughs> this turned out to be very effective of focusing my attention. And pretty soon, you know, you hold that racket at just slight can to your back. That's where that racket goes all the time. Do you feel the pain every time you do it? Uh, no. <laughs> but I feel the fear of the pain. <laughs> right? If I go like this, I go, damn. <laughs> Look around, right? But, but this is, this is, it, it is our capacity to focus on something selectively, right? I would forget. I'd go like this. Bad habit. Pain. Ah, okay. Oh, that's right. Focus on this. And then for a while, I'd focus on it. i pay attention. Make sure you're doing this right. It becomes a habit. This seems trivial. And it seems pretty much common sense. And, and, and William James talks a lot about common sense. But what it means is we can selectively rewrite our physical and mental and emotional interface with the world. Completely reoriented to, to an astounding degree. That plasticity of the human experience is what makes us essentially, James argues, human. The ability to focus our attention, change not just something about us, but change our whole perception of the world, and hence the world as we understand it and can experience it. To the point where we can rewrite it in our physical body, so we don't think about it anymore. That's just how we are. We can remake ourselves. I mean, not entirely, but to an unbelievable degree. If you learn a foreign language, impossible, 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 pretty soon you don't think about it. If you learn to play a musical instrument, oh, it's hard, you think about it. As soon as you can stop thinking about it, you're in business. Right? 
But th- th- think of those are totally different activities that we can write into our physical and mental systems. And by the way, James argues and proves pretty, pretty systematically that we, you literally are changing your physical body when you do this. When someone learns to play the guitar or the piano, you see someone doing something fast or very effortlessly, you are physically incapable of doing that when you begin studying. You cannot do it. You do not have the nerve, tendon, or muscle, or mental connections in your brain to make that happen. It's not physically possible for you. What you do when you practice is you rewrite your nerve structure, the actual physical structure of your brain, and the nerve tendons and connections of your body are changed. We're unbelievably plastic in that sense, malleable. But most importantly, by our own will, we can focus our attention on things. And so this is, this is his notion. He says, look, we have this selective encounter with the world. It's screened and it's overwhelming. And we try and deal with this through the use of habit, which screens out a lot of stuff automatically so we don't think about it. And then by attention, which are our capacity to focus on any aspect of the world that we choose for at least a short period of time. Um, and then apply that attention to change other aspects of our perception of the world. That's only two, uh, three of, uh, of the chapters from, from you know, an 1,100-page work. But this is, I think, the core of some of the key elements. But what this suggests, and suggests, he argues straightforwardly, is that the world is, in fact, malleable to us. There is no fixed, transfinite, absolute world to which we want a reference to get solutions to things or answers. That doesn't exist. The world is plastic because we're plastic. There's nothing to appeal to to, to, to nail stuff down. Right? When Russell was trying to nail down mathematics, so if, oh, if we can prove that's right, then we can build everything from there. That's the thing we can grip onto. Wittgenstein's language. You know, they're really reaching for that. Russell's, or, uh, James is like, no, it's not there. It doesn't exist. You can't have it. What you get instead is this remarkable flexibility. So this leads to the philosophical concept of pragmatism, which is not generated, it's not originated with James, but he provided all of the, the heavy lifting and, and explanation. Um, and have people heard of pragmatism? That, that this is the idea? Um, and James argued, look, pragmatism is simply a method. And, and it's a method that says your experiences and your ideas, ideas are experiences, by the way, and the facts and the evidence that you gather structure the way you look at the world. And if those things help you get through the world, then they're good. They are, by his definition, true. And if they don't, then they're false, and you have to do something to get rid of them and change them and get more evidence to do something else. He says it's, it's a method of a way of looking at the world. He says truth does not exist. Truth is made. Truth becomes. It's verified through action. He says any notion, idea, uh, fact, theory, philosophy that you have as an example of this, that does not lead to action, not just action, mental action, action in the world, is, or change in behavior, doesn't has no content. So we always talk about, okay, you know, the ancients used to be dumb, they thought the world was flat. Now we're smart because we've learned the world is a sphere. 
James would argue, do we behave any differently because the world is a sphere or if we're flat? As far as I know, I never have. (laughs) Which means that this great piece of scientific discovery that's revolutionized everything, for me personally, makes no difference at all. (laughs) Does anybody care? Does anybody have any, like... Yeah, I care. You care? I care. And you also do not know how that changes things in your mind. Mm. And then we so now, it may make a difference you're not It may make a difference that we're not aware of. Absolutely, but, that, but that, that is essentially no difference for us in our constructing of our philosophy, of the way we look at the world. And so we're taught things like the world isn't flat, the world is a sphere, but unless we're going to fly someplace ourselves, or sail, or, or sail around the world, um, although people who sail really ask yourself, do you imagine the world is a sphere or do you imagine it's continuously flat and you just happen to never fall off the edge? Right? I never imagine that I'm driving a car on a curved surface. That just never occurs to me. A lumpy surface. But I never feel like any sense but because we, it's hard to experience that. Now if I went into outer space and looked back, all of a sudden I'd be like, ooh, world sphere. I can experience that. Now, now it has much more meaning to me. But he says, this is what truth is. Truth is something that changes the way you act in the world. Philosophy is for life. If it works, then it's true for you. This is the definition of truth. Now, people hate this. They absolutely resist this fundamentally. One, because there's a notion, well, truth must be out there someplace. Certain things must be true. And James is like, well, you would think that were the case. And there's a lot of evidence for a lot of things to be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are true. Right? So, you know, I can think, oh, um, trying to think, what's something that's obviously true? All men are mortal, right? We're all going to die. James says, this is one of the problems we have, is but we never do die. We never get around to dying ourselves. And because we never get around to dying ourselves, it's sort of hard to conceptualize. And he says he thinks a lot of the problem that we have with dying is not the fear of dying, it's the fact that we have a hard time conceptualizing it because we never experience it. If we had died like five or six times, I think it would be no problem. <laughs> right? Like riding a bike. The first time is terrifying. The last couple of days, no problem. Pretty soon it's as easy as riding a bike. It's just no problem. But, the, but that first one is the only one we get. So conceptually, it just baffles us entirely because we have no experience of it. These are things that we have no palpable physical experience of baffle us continuously. And he says, so what happens is we're trying to create models in our mind, thoughts in our mind, that, that guide us through this unbelievably complex world that we experience, which may or may not be like the world that anybody else is experiencing. And so what do we do? James argues, and this is the part that I think is, is, is sort of the least evidence that he has for it, but it's a reasonably strong argument, is he said, what we're trying to do with truth is minimize conflict in ourselves. That we don't like to have two ideas that create continual strain. And so what we want to do, so if, we, if we're going on in our life, everything is happening. Let's say, I'm driving my Hummer, right? I'm happy, I'm whistling, I got my Hummer, I'm getting over three miles a gallon, I've got the air conditioner running, and I'm happy and I'm happy. And then all of a sudden, you know, I start reading about oh, global warming and the price of oil, and I'm like, oh, you know, see, damn. 
See, it's not that the Hummer is a problem, and it's not that the world is going to, you know, basically be environmentally destroyed. That's the problem. For me, the problem is I'm torn. I feel the dissonance between, oh, the planet, I'm sort of in favor of that. Oh, I love my Hummer. Right over here. What, what do I do? And he says, what we'll then do is try to restructure our concept to eliminate the dissidents. We're not interested in truth. He says, look, our, our interest in truth is so small it's hard to imagine. Truth with a capital T. He says, what we really want is some other facts or something else that will help us get rid of that cognitive dissonance, that feeling of strain, the feeling of not knowing what to do. Am I doing the right thing? Right? Isn't it, don't, don't you feel that debilitating all of a sudden your face? Oh, is this right? Should I do this? And then at some point you think, okay, I just don't want to be like this anymore. I'm going to come up with something so I don't have to feel this way anymore. And then whatever it is we come up with, James says, look, it doesn't rewrite everything that came before. It's grafted onto it. It's a new element in an ongoing growth of our understanding of the world. He says it never displaces anything. He says, uh, philosophically, we are, everyone is a conservative because we save as much as we possibly can and we let go with the smallest amount and we graft on the smallest possible amount to smooth things out again. Right? And he says, this is what, what truth is. Truth is a thing that allows us to get through the world, through our lives, with the least amount of mental sort of torment and, and strain and pressure that we can. Important to note, though, that where the strain and pressure comes from is not just the external world. This has often been interpreted by people as saying, oh, well, this is just, you know, if you make money, you win. And therefore, you're a good person because your philosophy works. He's like, you know, this strain can come from any number of places. He says it can come from the person who's sitting there going, all I'm doing is making money, I'm really bored. But money is good, being bored is bad. Money is good, bored is... Now you're going to do something. Because you don't want to put up with that. Right? People, people you know, are bored on the farm, and so they go to the city to become lawyers, and corporate lawyers leave the city to go buy farms. <laughs> and neither of them are wrong. To James, it's all correct. But they're each feeling a different part of, of the human experience and a different part of the stream of consciousness, and they're trying to decide, oh, you know, what, what part is right? What part works for me? And again, people, we tend to dislike this, and then James was attacked resolutely then, and people are attacked resolutely now for this, because they say, well, well, how do you have any ethics or morals? How do you have any sense of right or wrong? And James says, well, it's tricky. <laughs> and so he wrote sort of a big book in pursuit of these questions called The Varieties of Religious Experience which if, if you want to think about it if 1100 pages of the principles of psychology wasn't enough for you it's really the third 800 page volume which makes it a roundish 2000 page read highly recommended um, but you want to set aside some time um, and what the varieties of religious experience, as far as I know, again, no other work I've ever seen even approaches this. But James says, look, here's the thing. Empiricists, um, scientists, whatever you want to call them, sit down and say, well, there's no evidence that God exists. So there's no God. 
And James is like, yeah, well, but people have all these experiences that they say are very religious. They're not lying. They're serious. So we either have to treat them as mentally deranged or we can take them seriously and ask, what is the nature of their experiences? That's pragmatism. It's not right or wrong. It's what is it? Let's understand it. Let's think about it. And so he has an 800-ish page long book called The Variety of Religious Experience. When he goes through every... I mean, he is just encyclopedic. He says, you know, uh, Christian mystics, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, the scholastic tradition, the meditative tradition, hallucination with drugs, uh, you know, isolation, wandering in the... I mean, just every possible reporter. He uses historical reports, he does his experiments, he uses literature, he uses religious texts from all over the world, saints, monks, prophets, you name it. It's God. It's, a, it's, it's sort of magisterial in the, in the scope that he explores. Um... And his conclusion from this is that, one, people really do have religious experiences. Two, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a God. (laughs) Right? And that's the problem, because you can't prove anything from the isolated experience of an individual. Because back to the principles of psychology, our thoughts and our experiences are our own. If you get a bunch of people who share thoughts and experiences, what you have is accumulation of isolated experiences. And they're probably not all that comparable anyway, which is one of the things as you go through the variety of religious experience that he explores. Sometimes things that seem very similar are very different. They've been lumped together in tradition, but not, not exactly the same. And so he throws us into this world where he's like, yeah, look, what you want is evidence. You want facts. You want um, to act in the world based on that because if you don't, you, you suffer more or less. That's your problem. You're in the world. If you have bad, wrong-headed ideas, you usually suffer for them. That causes us to modify our thinking. And then, and then we try and come up with a new model, with a new philosophy that we can apply more effectively. And then, in that sense, it becomes more true because it allows us to act more um, and reduces that strain. But again, all of this built on a model of the mind as being plastic, subject to our own revision, and not really terribly well connected with the world. And so, so back to this notion of truth, because we, you know, science says, oh, um, you know, what do we know that's absolutely true? Look, anywhere in the universe... If, if you have a circle, right, you're going to come up with pi. Because you can't square the circle. So, so this is what mathematicians will say. This, look, that's just true. It's true everywhere. Now, there's, you don't have to argue against that. You can just say, well, that's fine. But notice that some society like we do might just round off after one place. They might just say, oh, pi is three. And then we would say, no, no, it's 3.1. They're like, yeah, well, we don't do that. <laughs> perfectly reasonable thing to do is it's easy to imagine someone doing that it, w- it would limit the accuracy of your calculation of pi but to, you know you don't do that very much right and so this notion that this is some universal truth 
No, it seems to us like it must be a universal truth because that's the answer we're going to get every time. And we can't figure out how somebody else would get a different answer. Well, they won't if they do what we do, which is if they're just like us, yeah, they'll be just like us. Or they might have some, some society that comes up with 3.14, whatever it is, and then says, you know, okay, but we don't count mathematical things as true. We only count things that you can taste as true. Right? If you can't taste it, we'll just bracket it off as potentially true, but not really true. Apples, they're true. <laughs> Pie, no taste, it doesn't count. <laughs> By the way, this is what people used to think, not, not taste, but if you couldn't experience it, nobody believed in it. Right? We always think of, ooh, all those superstitious people living in the primitive tribe. This is the other way around. They only believed in things that they could experience directly. We're the superstitious ones because we believe in all kinds of abstract crap we've never seen, touched, felt, there, or know really anything directly about. <laughs> Back to the varieties of religious experience. And James points this out. He says, look, you primitive tribes people, no, they have these experiences. They feel it. That's why they believe in it. He says, James, James had, he really hated what they're theists. People, theists are, are uh, a sort of Christian idea that God created the world and then left. And he's like, oh, come on. So that we can't even, so we have to believe in God, but we can't experience him because he's gone. He's like, oh, that's the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> so you, you, want to, you don't want to discount God, but you don't want to have to have any encounter with him. Right? You don't want to ever feel him. It's as if you ever have the opportunity to feel him, that you're like totally rejecting the basis on which to believe anything anyway. And theism is really popular even today. Theism is still relatively popular. He's like, look, believe in anything but theism. He, that's the one thing he really sort of drew the line. He's like, theism is dumb. Um, but, but there's no, oh, yeah, God created the world and left, so we don't know anything about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not much use for theism. Um, so not, not surprised, as you can imagine, someone who comes up with these arguments uh, is, is accused of, of all kinds of things, sort of like uh, relativism. Right? Well, if so, in my tribe, it's perfectly normal to kill all the women when they're 25 just because we like to do that, then it's fine. And James is like, no. I mean, it's true that they do this. Right? It's also true that they think it's fine. That doesn't mean you have to think it's fine because your experience and your physical philosophical ideas tell you, well, that's a bad thing to do to women. They ought not do that. And so we'll take steps, perhaps, to stop them from doing that. And, and you know, those are, oh, hearts and minds, right? We'll try and re-educate them, literally, hearts and minds. Because if we can get them in the habit of not doing that, it will never even occur to them to do it anymore. Right? Want to have a son, had a daughter, so, well, we'll just kill the daughter. Right? Makes perfect sense to me. When did we stop doing that? We used to do it. Every culture did, pretty much. And so, um, at some point, we got out of the habit of it. And now we think, ooh, that's terrible that those people do it. James says, look, it's okay to say that it's terrible, but you can't say that they shouldn't do it from any universal principle. There is no universal principle. The universal principle is because we feel like they shouldn't do it. That's what you have to appeal to. Our experience, our philosophy, our uh, habituation leads us to think what you're doing is stupid and what we're doing is smart. And he says, what we want to claim is that we're in the right. 
We're standing on the grounds of absolute certitude and truth. You are a backwards reprobate culture and you must be corrected. He's like, yeah, no, it's there, you, there is, you can't stand on those grounds. The only ground you can stand on is your sense that that is wrong. That's the only ground. You'd have no further claim. And James allows no further claim in that. He suggests strongly that you think about things, that you try to examine the evidence as best you can. Because he does point out in several letters in particular that people fall into habits. This is one of the dangers of habits, is they're so powerful that it then it turns off basically our humanity because we don't have to think about things. We just become creatures of habit, at which point we're cows. I don't know why they always call people cows, but that's the bad thing, right? <laughs> when you become a stupid creature of habit, you're a cow. Uh, but that's what we become, right? We become these, these dumb creatures of habit. We're, we're just cows. And he applies these theories all over the place, by the way. Last example, um, he talks, the best article I've ever read on animal intelligence is by William James, called The Intelligence of Beasts, I think. Uh, beast, in that point, only had the, the connotation of an animal. It didn't have a pejorative connotation. Now, beast is bad, right? right? You wouldn't call somebody's dog, oh, that's a very cute beast you have there. <laughs> but in James's time, we would say, oh, that's a very cute beast you have there. Um, but he said, so we have dogs, right? And he says... And the thing with dogs is they're so smart that we can't figure out why they're so dumb. <laughs> that's, that's his, he, I love the way he posits that because he says if they were a little dumber all the time, we wouldn't expect them to be smart at all. And we go, oh, you know, just a dog. But they're really smart at some things. So we think, God, if you could do all that, why can't you do a little more? <laughs> and be basically like us. And he says, and again, the experimental evidence here is very strong, that what dogs do is they think just like us. They have exactly one of our two major thought processes. That's why they seem so familiar, because we think like dogs, but we also think in ways that are not like dogs. He says the first thing to understand is the reason we can communicate so well with dogs and get along with them so well is because they think very much like we do, but we don't think that way all the time and exclusively, and they do. And the example he gives is he says, a, a friend of his goes down to a boat, long walk from his, from his house, and he's going to row out on the lake with his dog. And he gets there, and the boat's filled with water and mud in the bottom of it. And he's like, ah, damn, I've got to clean this out before I go rowing. He has one sponge, and so he sort of sponges it out, and the sponge gets all grummy until he says, he doesn't want to walk to the house. So he shows the dog, he says, sponge, 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 you know, go get the sponge. So the dog runs up to the house and sure enough comes back with the sponge. And the friend says, ah, you see how smart dogs are? And James is like, yes, they can make that connection. This very direct, symbolic, one-to-one correlation. Dogs can do that. They're great at it. They can pay attention to their master. They're very attentive to humans. They can figure out that a sponge is a sponge and a bone is a bone. Um... He says, what a dog can't do and what humans can do unless they're really dumb um, is go up to the house, not find a sponge, and come back with a towel. And he says, this seems simple, but it's a huge intuitive leap. Because what we've done, and he called this associative reasoning, is we've said the sponge has certain qualities that are not inherent in the sponge. 
Like being able to absorb water. We'll call it absorptiveness. And so what we do is we go, oh, he wants a sponge. And then we go, no, what he really wants is something to absorb water. And so if I can't find a sponge, I'll look for anything else that has this quality that is abstracted from it. Absorptiveness. And then we'll wipe, get something else to do that. And I take him a towel. No sponge, here's a towel. He goes, okay. If you come back down and you go, oh, I couldn't find a sponge. And they go, well, you didn't bring a towel, you'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, we've all done that. Yes, haven't we all been there in your life? I'll be right back. Right. Because you're just like, oh, I totally blew it. Because uh, we were not using it. We don't use it all the time. Maybe we don't use it often enough. And he says, and this is one of the things that allows us to selectively understand and use our reason and our attention much more effectively because we can abstract from the objects that we do see in the world qualities and then create big classes of them. And so we can say, oh, I want something that's absorptive. And then we can bring back any old damn thing, a towel. Okay, I couldn't find a towel or a sponge, so I brought back your sofa cushion. <laughs> right? Which absorbs things, but then he doesn't want that either. <laughs> See, we wouldn't make that mistake, even though a sofa cushion can't absorb stuff. He says this is unbelievable, just huge power to organize our thinking and to make connections between things abstractly. The, 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 the great example of this also is dolphins. Dolphins drown in fishing nets because they won't jump over them. Now, dolphins can jump huge in the air. It's not clear why they can't figure this out. Because they jump over stuff all the time. But for some reason, they're in a fishing net, they're drowning, and they never think, oh. It would be as if this room were on fire, we had the door there, the windows, the door there, and this door, and everybody went, crap, it's hot. <laughs> we went, that's what dolphins do. And we know they're smart in a way. But they're not smart in that sense. They don't have, as far as we know yet, um, that level of abstracting essences from things and comparing them. And so he says, this is again, back to the pragmatism. This is both hugely powerful, but it also means our relation to the world is very weird. Dogs have a much more idealistic relation to the world. Things are what they are. That thing is that thing, or it's not that thing. We have this weird relation. We're continually abstracting qualities from things. Absorptiveness. Does absorptiveness exist in nature? Moss. You know, but I mean, in the sense of, no, sponges exist. Things that absorb things exist. Absorptiveness is a category we just made up as a thought category. And then we have this whole world that we live in that's probably at least 50-50, sometimes I think 90-10, of these weird thought categories. Right? And, and, and how we build those and structure them, that's what constructs our world. So James ends by saying, look, so we don't really have access to capital T truth. We have what works for us. We don't have access to abstract, absolute ideals. We have the abstractions that work for us that we carry around with us. And that we're habituated to them, but we can change them. Uh, it's not influential. James is probably one of the least influential philosophers you'll find because people hate this. <laughs> he also did not like academics and he argued against them vociferously. He said he didn't know what kind of world we have but if it were designed by philosophy professors it would be very orderly and it would be like a pencil sketch world. Easy to categorize, 
lots of clear boundaries, and none of the mucky crap that makes up our messy world. He says, I like the messy, mucky world. This is the last note on James. He says, you know, he launches radical imperialism, empiricism into the world, and and he launches it both as a philosophy, but also personally. Everyone who met him said he was one of the greatest humans they ever met. People loved James, immediately responded to him. He's open to everything. He, he was one of the most unprejudiced, gent, gentle and gentlemanly people anyone had met at a time when gentlemen still existed as a category of person. This is one of the most common, they just, people really were powerfully drawn to him. But again, it was an extension of his philosophy. He said, if I believe that your world is as valid as my world, then I need to treat you with as much respect as I treat myself. I am not righter than you are. I cannot be more right than you are. We can disagree. I can try to convince you, but I can't make you wrong. Only you can make you wrong. And you can only do that voluntarily or under extreme pressure. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll give in. But usually it's a voluntary thing of attention and habit again. And so it's a, a very different approach and, and, and a, a powerful series of arguments. And so I recommend anybody, very readable, who's interested in this, I, I put this list on the back, is check out Pragmatism is probably the easiest read. And from there you can go anywhere. But if you're feeling up to it, Principles of Psychology, an excellent work. Anyway, William James, Key Concepts, thank you very much.